It is March 20th. It is also the first day of Animal Crossing, so if you hear a bunch of talking animal noises in the background, my daughter is playing it. I'm not going to ask her not to because she's been looking forward to this for probably two years. Um, <clears throat> I'm about to start reading Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes for you, and this is going to be a very, very, very long reading. Um, I'm going to break it into about a half million episodes, and we'll see if I extinguish the episodes or the book first. It's quite long. Um, I'm going to... Uh, I, I've made an effort to try and pronounce the Spanish correctly. I don't know Spanish, um, and I've gone to uh, YouTube's pronunciation guide several times and tried to do my best, so we'll see how that goes. Dedication of Volume 1 To the Duke of Behar, Marquis of Gibraleon, Count of Benal Cesar and Banyars, Vicomte of the Puebla de Alcocer, Master of the Towns of Capilla, Curiel, and Burguilos. In belief of the good reception and honors that Your Excellency bestows on all sort of books, as prince so inclined to favor good arts, chiefly those who by their nobleness do not submit to the service and bribery of the vulgar, I have determined bringing to light the ingenious gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha, in shelter of Your Excellency's glamorous name, to whom, with the obeisance I owe to such grandeur, I pray to receive it agreeably under his protection, so that in this shadow, though deprived of that precious ornament of elegance and erudition that clothe the works composed in the houses of those who know it, it dares appear with assurance in the judgment of some who, trespassing the bounds of their own ignorance, use to condemn with more rigor and less justice the writings of others. It is my earnest hope that Your Excellency's good counsel in regard to my honorable purpose will not disdain the littleness of so humble a service. Miguel de Cervantes I would not normally read an author's preface, but I enjoy this one. Idle reader, thou mayest believe me without any oath that I would this book, as it is a child of my brain, were the fairest, gayest, and cleverest that could be imagined. But I could not counteract nature's law that everything shall beget its like. And what, then, could this sterile, ill-tilled, wit of mine beget but the story as a dry, shriveled, whimsical offspring, full of thoughts of all sorts, and such as never came into any other imagination. Just what might be begotten in a prison, where every misery is lodged, and every doleful sound makes its dwelling? Tranquility, a cheerful retreat, pleasant fields, bright skies, murmuring brooks, peace of mind, these are the things that go far to make even the most barren muses fertile and bring into the world births that fill it with wonder and delight. Sometimes when a father has an ugly, loutish son, the love he bears him so blindfolds his eyes that he does not see his defects, or, rather, takes them for gifts and charms of mind and body, and talks of them to his friends as wit and grace. I, however, for though I pass for the father, I am but the stepfather to Don Quixote. Have no desire to go with the current of custom, or to implore thee, dearest reader, almost with tears in my eyes, as others do, 
to pardon or excuse the defects thou wilt perceive in this child of mine. Thou art neither its kinsman nor its friend. Thy soul is thine, is thine own, and thy will as free as any man's. Whatever he be, thou art in thine own house and master of it, as much as the king in his taxes, and thou knowest the common saying, Under my cloak I kill the king. All that exempts and frees thee from every consideration and obligation. And thou canst say what thou wilt of the story without fear of being abused, for any ill or rewarded, for any good thou mayest say of it. My wish would be simply to present it to thee plain and unadorned, without any embellishment of preface, or unaccountable muster of customary sonnets, epigrams, and eulogies, such as are commonly put at the beginning of books. For I can tell thee, though composing it cost me some labor, I found none greater than the making of this preface thou art now reading. Many times did I take up my pen to write it, and many did I lay it down again, not knowing what to write. One of these times, as I was pondering with the paper before me, a pen in my ear, my elbow on the desk, and my cheek in my hand, thinking of what I should say, there came in unexpectedly a certain lively, clever friend of mine, who, seeing me so deep in thought, asked the reason, to which I, making no mystery of it, answered that I was thinking of the preface I had made for the story of Don Quixote, which so troubled me that I had a mind not to make any at all, nor even publish the achievements of so noble a knight. For how could you expect me not to feel uneasy about what that ancient lawgiver they call the public will say when it sees me, after slumbering so many years in the silence of oblivion, coming out now with all my years upon my back, and with a book as dry as a rush, devoid of invention, meager in style, poor in thoughts, wholly wanting in learning and wisdom, without quotations in the margin or annotations at the end, after the fashion of other books I see, which, though all fables and profanity, are so full of maxim from Aristotle and Plato, and the whole herd of philosophers, that they fill the reader with amazement and convince them that the authors are men of learning, erudition and eloquence. And then, when they quote the Holy Scriptures, anyone would say they are St. Thomas's or other doctors of the Church, observing as they do a decorum so ingenious that in one sentence they describe a distracted lover, and in the next deliver a devout little sermon that it is a pleasure and a treat to hear and read. Of all this there will be nothing in my book, for I have nothing to quote in the margin, or to note at the end and still less do I know what authors I follow in, to, play, to place them at the beginning, as all do, under the letters A, B, C, beginning with Aristotle and ending with Xenophon, or Zolius, or Zeusius, though once was a slander and the other a painter. Also, my book must do without sonnets at the beginning, at least sonnets whose authors are dukes, marquis, counts, bishops, ladies, or famous poets. Though, if I were to ask two or three obliging friends, I know they would give me them, and such as the productions of those that have the highest reputation in our Spain could not equal. In short, my friend, I continued, I am determined that Señor Don Quixote shall remain buried in the archives of his own La Mancha until heaven provides someone to garnish him with all those things he stands in need of. Because I find myself, through my shallowness and want of learning, 
unequal to supplying them. And because I am by nature shy and careless about hunting for authors to say what I myself can say without them. Hence, the conjugation and abstraction you found me in, and reason enough what you have heard from me. Hearing this, my friend giving himself a slap on the forehead and breaking into a hearty laugh, exclaimed, Before God, brother, now I am disabused of an error in which I had been living all this long time I have known you, all through which I had taken you to be shrewd and sensible in all you do. But now I see you are as far from that as heaven is from earth. Is it possible that the things of so little moment and so easy to set right can occupy and perplex a ripe wit like yours, fit to bake through and crush far greater obstacles? By my faith this comes, not of any want of ability, but of too much indolence and too little knowledge of life. Do you want to know if I am telling the truth? Well then, attend to me, and you will see how, in the opening and shutting of an eye, I sweep away all your difficulties, and supply all those deficiencies, which you say check and discourage you from bringing before the world the story of your famous Don Quixote, the light and mirror of all knight-errantry. Say on, say I, listening to his talk. How do you propose to make up for my diffidence, and reduce to order this chaos of perplexity I am in? To which he made answer, Your first difficulty about the sonnets, epigrams, or complimentary verses, which you want for the beginning, and which ought to be by the person of importance and rank, can be removed if you yourself take a little trouble to make them. You can afterward baptize them, and put any name you like to them, fathering them on Prester John of the Indies, or the Emperor of Tresmazond, who, to my knowledge, were said to have been famous poets, and, even if they were not, and any penance or bachelor should attack you and question the fact, never care too Mardivis for that, for even if they prove a lie against you, they cannot cut off the hand you wrote it with. As to references in the margin of the books and authors from whom you take aphorisms and saying you put into your story, it is only contriving to fit in nicely any sentences or scraps of Latin you may happen to have by heart, or at any rate that will not give you much trouble to look up, so as when you speak of freedom and captivity to insert non bene pro todo liberatus venitur auroro, and then refer in the margin to Horace, or whoever said it, or, if you allude to the power of death, to come in with Pallida mors aquino pulsat pide patrum tabeneras regumque turus. If it be friendship, and the love God bids us bear to our enemy, go at once to the holy scriptures, which you can do with very small amount of research, and quote no less in the words of God himself, ego autum dico vibus, Digiliti Eminicos Vestros. If you speak of evil thoughts, turn to the Gospel. Decord exunt cogniteris male. If the, of the fickleness of friends, there is Cato, who will give you his distinct Donech eris feles multos numberamus amicos tempora se funerit nublila. Whatever. Sorry, I can't read Latin. <laughs> with these and such like bits of Latin, they will take you for a grammarian, which they clearly won't take me for, at all, at any and all events, and that nowadays is no small honor and profit. With regard to adding annotations at the end of your book, you may safely do it in this way. If you mention any giant in your book, contrive that it shall be the giant Goliath, and with this alone, 
which will cost you almost nothing, you have a grand note, for you can put the giant Goliath, or Goliath, was a Philistine whom the shepherds David slew by a mighty stone cast in the Terberinth Valley, as is related in the books of Kings, in the chapter where you find it written. Next, to prove yourself a man of erudition in polite literature and cosmography, manage that the river Tagus should be named in your story, and there you are at once with another famous annotation, setting forth the river Tagus was so called after a king of Spain. It has its sources in such and such a place, and falls into the ocean, kissing the walls of the famous city of Libsen, and it is common belief that it has golden sands, etc. If you should have anything to do with robbers, I will give you the story of Cacus, for I have it by heart. If with loose women, there is a bishop of Mundanero, who will give you the loan of Lamia, Ladia, and Flora, any references to whom will bring you great credit. If with hard-hearted ones, Ovid will furnish you with Medea. If with witches or enchantresses, Homer has Calypso and Virgil Circe. If with valiant captains, Julius Caesar himself will lend you himself in his own commentaries, and Plutarch will give you a thousand Alexanders. If you should deal with love, with two ounces you may know of Tuscan, you can go to Leon the Hebrew, who will supply to your heart's content. Or if you should not care to go to foreign countries, you have at the home of Fonesca's of the love of God, in which is condensed all that you or the most imaginative mind can want on the subject. In short, all you have to do is manage to quote these names or to refer to these stories I have mentioned, and leave it to me to insert the annotations and quotations, and I swear by all that's good to fill your margins and use up four sheets at the end of the book. Now let us come to those references to authors which other books have and you want for yours. The remedy for this is very simple. You have only to look out for some book that quotes them all, from A to Z as you say yourself, and then insert the very same alphabet in your book. And though the imposition may be plain to see, because you have so little need to borrow from them, that is no matter. There will probably be some simple enough to believe that if you have made use of them in all this plain, artless story of yours. At any rate, if it answers no other purpose, this long catalogue of authors will serve to give a surprising look of authority to your book. Besides, no one will trouble himself to verify whether you have followed them or whether you have not, being in no way concerned with it, especially as, if I mistake not, this book of yours has no need of any one of those things you say at once, for it is, from beginning to end, an attack upon the books of chivalry, of which Aristotle never dreamt, nor St. Basil said a word, nor Cicero had any knowledge. Nor do the niceties of truth nor the observations of astrology come within the range of its fanciful vagaries, nor have geometrical measurements or refutations of the arguments used in rhetoric anything to do with it, nor does it mean to preach to anybody, mixing up things human and divine, a sort of motley in which no Christian understanding should dress itself. It had only to prevail itself of truth in nature to its composition, and the more perfect the imitation, the better the work will be. And as this piece of yours aims at nothing more than to destroy the authority and influence which books of chivalry have in the world, and with the public, there is no need for you to go a-begging for aphorisms for philosophers, precepts from holy scripture, fables from poets, speeches from orators, 
or miracles from saints, but merely to take care that your style and diction run musically, pleasantly, and plainly, with clear, proper, and well-placed words, setting forth your purpose to the best of your power, and putting your ideas intelligibly without confusion or obscurity. Strive, too, that in the reading of your story, the melancholy may be moved to laughter, and the merry may be merrier still, that the simple shall not be wearied, that the judicious shall admire the invention, that the grave shall not despise it, nor the wise fail to praise it. Finally, keep your aim fixed on the destruction that ill-founded edifice of the books of chivalry, hated by some and praised by many more, for if you succeed in this, you have achieved no small success. In profound silence, I listened to what my friend said, and his observations made such an impression on me that, without attempting to question them, I admitted their soundness, and out of them I determined to make this preface, wherein, gentle reader, thou wilt perceive my friend's good sense, my good fortune in finding such an adviser in such a time of need, and what thou hast gained in receiving, without addition or alteration, the story of the famous Don Quixote of La Mancha, who was held by all in the inhabitants of the district of the Campo de Montiel to have been the chastest lover and the bravest knight that has for many years been seen in that neighborhood. I have no desire to magnify the service I render thee in making thee acquainted with so renowned and honored a knight, but I do desire thy thanks for the acquaintance thou wilt make with the famous Sancho Panza, his squire, in whom, to my thinking, I have given thee condensed all the squirrely drolleries that are scattered through the swarm of the vain books of chivalry. And so, may God give thee health and not forget me, valet. And with that we have made it to chapter one, which treats of the character and pursuits of the famous gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. In a village of La Mancha, the name of which I have no desire to call to mind, there lived not long since one of those gentlemen that keep a lance in the lance-rack, an old buckler, a lean hack, and a greyhound for coursing, an ola of rather more beef than mutton, a salad on most nights, scraps on Saturdays, lentils on Fridays, and a pigeon or so extra on Sundays, made away with three-quarters of his income. The rest of it went into a doublet of fine cloth and velvet breeches, and shoes to match for holidays, while on weekdays he made a brave figure in his best homespun. He had in his house a housekeeper past forty, a niece under twenty, and a lad for the field and marketplace, who used to saddle the hack as well as handle the billhook. The age of this gentleman of ours was bordering on fifty. He was of a hardy habit, spare, gaunt-featured, a very early riser and a great sportsman. They will have it his surname was Quixada, or Casita, for here there is some difference of opinion among the authors who write on the subject, although, from reasonable conjectures, it seems plain that he was called Quixini, Quixina. Sorry. This, however, is of but little importance to our tale. It will be enough not to stray a hair's breadth from the truth of telling it. You must know, then, that the above-named gentleman, wherever he was at leisure, which was mostly all year round, gave himself up to reading books of chivalry, 
with such ardor and avidity that he almost entirely neglected the pursuit of his field sports and even the management of his property and to such a pitch did his eagerness and infatuation go that he sold many an acre of tillage land to buy books of chivalry to read and brought home as many of them as he could get but of all there were none he liked so well as those of the famous feliciano de silva's composition for their lucidity of style and complicated conceits were as pearls in his sight particularly when in his reading he came upon courtships and cartels where he often found passages like the reason of the unreason with which my reason is afflicted so weakens my reason that with reason i murmur at her beauty or again the high heavens that of your divinity divinely fortify you with the stars render you deserving of the desert your greatness deserves over conceits of this sort the poor gentleman lost his wits and used to lie awake striving to understand them and worm the meaning out of them what aristotle himself could not have made out or extracted he had come to life again for that special purpose he was not at all easy about the wounds that don belianus gave and took because it seemed to him that great as were the surgeons who had cured him he must have had his face and body covered all over with his seams and scars he commended however the author's way of ending his book with the promise that the interminable adventure and many a time was he tempted to take up his pen and finish it properly as is there proposed which no doubt he would have done and made a successful piece of work of it too had not greater and more absorbing thoughts prevented him many an argument did he have with the curate of his village a learned man and a graduate of seguenza as to which had better been the better knight palmerin of england or armadus of gaul master nicholas the village barber however used to say that neither of them came up to the knight of phoebus and that if there was any that could compare with him it was don galior the brother of amadis of gaul because he had a spirit that was equal in every occasion and was no wishy-washy knight nor cry-baby like his brother while in the matter of valor he was not a whit behind him <clears throat> in short he became so absorbed in his books that he spent his nights from sunset to sunrise and his days from dawn till dusk poring over them and what with little sleep and much reading his brains got so dry that he lost his wits his fancy grew full of what he used to read about in his books enchantments quarrels battles challenges wounds wooings loves agonies and all sorts of impossible nonsense and it so possessed his mind that the whole fabric of invention and fancy he read of was true that to him no history in the world had more reality in it he used to say the cid roy diaz was a very good knight but that he was not to be compared with the knight of the burning sword who was with one backstroke cut in half two fierce and monstrous giants he thought more of bernardo del caprio because at rossin's valis he slew roland in spite of enchantments availing himself of the artifice of hercules when he strangled antaeus the son of terra in his arms he approved highly of the giant morgante because although of the giant breed which is always arrogant and ill-conditioned he alone was affable and well-bred 
but above all, he admired Rinaldos of Montalban, especially when he saw him sallying forth from his castle and robbing everyone he met. And when, beyond the seas, he stole that image of Mahomet, which, as his history says, was entirely of gold. To have a bout of kicking at that traitor of a Ganleon, he would have given his housekeeper and his niece into the bargain. In short, his wits being quite gone, he hit upon the strangest notion that every madman in his world hit upon, and that was that he fancied it was right and requisite, as well for the support of his own honor as for the service of his country, that he should make a knight errant of himself, roaming the world over in full armor, and on horseback in quest of adventures, and putting in practice himself all that he had read of as being the usual practices of knights errant, righting every kind of wrong, and exposing himself to peril and danger, from which, in the issue, he was to reap eternal renown and fame. Already the poor man saw himself crowned by the might of his arm, emperor of Trebizond at least, and so, led away by the intense enjoyment he found in these pleasant fancies, he set himself forthwith to put his scheme into execution. The first thing he did was to clean up some armor that had belonged to his great-grandfather, and had been lying for ages forgotten in the corner, eaten with rust and covered with mildew. He scoured and polished it as best he could, but he perceived one great defect in it, that it had no closed helmet, nothing but a simple morion. This deficiency, however, his ingenuity supplied, for he contrived a kind of half-helmet of pasteboard, which, fitted on to the morion, looked like a whole one. It is true that, in order to see if it was strong and fit to stand a cut, he drew his sword and gave it a couple of slashes, the first of which undid it in an instant, which had taken him a week to do. The ease with which it had been knocked to pieces disconcerted him somewhat, and to guard against that danger he set to work again, fixing bars of iron on the inside, until he was satisfied with its strength. And then, not caring to try any more experiments with it, he passed it and adopted it as his helmet of the most perfect construction. He next proceeded to inspect his hack, which, with more quartros than a real, and more blemished than the steed of Gonlia, that Tatum Pellis et Osa Fruit, surpassed in his eyes the Bucephalus of Alexander, or the Babasica, or the Cid. For days were spent thinking in what name to give him, because, as he said to himself, it was not right that a horse belonging to a knight so famous, and one with such merits as his own, should be without some distinctive name. And he strove to adapt it so as to indicate what he had been belonging to a knight errant, and what he then was, for it was only reasonable that, his master taking a new character, he should take a new name, and that it should be a distinguished and full-sounding one, befitting the new order and calling he was what he was about to follow. And so, after having composed, struck out, rejected, added to, unmade, and remade a multitude of names out of his memory and fancy, he decided upon calling him Rocinante, a name, to his thinking, lofty, sonorous, and significant of his condition as a hack, before he became what he now was, the first and foremost of all hacks in the world. Having got a name his horse so much to his taste, he was anxious to get one for himself, and he was eight days more pondering over this point, 
till at last he made up his mind to call himself Don Quixote, whence, as has been already said, the authors of this voracious history have inferred that his name must have been beyond a doubt Quixada, not Quesada, as others would have it. Recollecting, however, that the valiant Amadis was not connected to call himself curtly Amadis, and nothing more, but added the name of his kingdom and country to make it famous, and called himself Amadis of Gaul, he, like a good knight, resolved to add on the name of his, and to style himself Don Quixote of La Mancha, whereby, he considered, he described accurately his origin and country, and did honor it in taking the surname from it. So then, his armor being furbished, his morion turned into a helmet, his hat christened, and he himself confirmed, he came to the conclusion that nothing more was needed now but to look out for a lady to be in love with. For a knight errant without love was like a tree without leaves or fruit, or a body without a soul. As he said to himself, If, for my sins, or by my good fortune, I come across some giant hereabouts, a common occurrence with knights errant, and overthrow him in one onslaught, or cleave him asunder to the waist, or, in short, vanquish him and subdue him, will it not be well to have someone I may send him to as a present, that he may come in and fall on his knees before my sweet lady, and in a humble, submissive voice say, I am the giant Caraculeambrio, lord of the island of Melandrania, vanquished in a single combat by the never-sufficiently extolled knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, who has commanded me to present myself before your grace, that your highness dispose of me at your pleasure? Oh, how our good gentleman enjoyed the delivery of this speech, especially when he had thought of someone to call his lady. There was, so the story goes, in a village near his own, a very good-looking farm girl, with whom he had been at one time in love, though, so far as is known, she never knew it, nor gave a thought to the matter. Her name was Eldonza Lorenzo, and upon her he thought to fit to confer the title of Lady of His Thoughts, and after some search, for a name which should not be out of harmony with her own, and should suggest and indicate that of a princess and great lady, he decided upon calling her Delcina del Toboso, she being of El Toboso, a name, to his mind, musical, uncommon, and significant, like all those he had already bestowed upon himself and the things belonging to him.